Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the new and improved version of the Meltzer 5 Star Project. Well, I guess improved is yet to be seen <laughs> or heard in this instance. But it's the new version of the podcast in which myself, you let me tell you something co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and your other let me tell you something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss every match that Dave Meltzer's rated 5 stars or higher. And in this instance, for the first time, we're bunching a load of them together because in the mere first 13 days and the last day of 2024 and 2023, respectively, Dave Meltzer rated five matches five stars or higher, and then a day later he rated another one five stars. So... (laughs) (laughs) Now, and we covered this when we said, obviously, why we're bunching. But it's it, it's a nice vindication for you as to why we've decided to bunch, isn't it, Lorcan? <laughs> yes, it is. So we don't yet know how the flow and the nature of these episodes might go. In the future, we may just record five mini episodes ourselves during the period of time when the ep- when the matches get rated five stars, and then I'll bunch them together as one longer recording. But in this instance, we're just going to start talking about the first match of the five, then see where that discussion takes us. Does it take us to another match in Japan? Or does it take us to... Well, it does take us to another match in Japan, but does it take us... Oh, for fuck's sake, does do... Like, we don't know what we're doing, all right? (laughs) And I don't really want to edit that much, so you might have heard that for fuck's sake. It depends. Yeah. We are a lot... There is a reason before we started recording where we were singing a whole new world to each other. We are in one. Um, yeah. I didn't like Simon's version of a whole new world. <laughs> oh. I don't think we'll go down that path. But what path will we go down, Simon? Well, will we go down a King's Road, perhaps? Oh, well... <sighs> It's a style of King's Road. It, it It's King's Road 2.0, I guess. It It's our first port of call in this, which is a match which took place on the 31st of December 2003 in all Japan. 2003? 2023. Oh, I'm wishing life away there. Against Katsuhiko... Katsuhiko. Katsuhiko. There's no chi in there. Sorry. Katsuhiko Nakajima and Kento Miyahara. A rematch from what we'd seen a few months prior, but in Pro Wrestling Noah. But in the time in between then, Katsuhiko Nakajima has departed from Pro Wrestling Noah and gone into the home territory of Kento Miyahara. I guess he figured, well, I can beat their ace. I might as well take their title as well. Yeah. And that's what he did in the match that we covered a few weeks ago for the Melter Five Star Project. Beating Yuma Aoyagi. And here we are now, probably the, as we were saying, the guy who had been the top star, the ace of all Japan for the past 10 years or so, against the man that is taking over and really trying to reform all Japan into his image. And that image is embodied from the start. I don't know how much of this you got, Simon. Well, you say his image. 
Well, that's the thing, yeah. It's not necessarily his, but it's an image that he's not even necessarily that much part of. It's one of those things where there's layers to it that maybe we don't fully appreciate. Yeah. But the fact that he's going to all Japan's big event and he's coming out to Antonio Inoki's music <laughs> with the founding president or something of New Japan Pro Wrestling is an old dude anyway yeah. that he's coming out with wearing the Antonio Inoki trademark red scarf that Tony Khan likes to put on every once in a while as well. He can't pull it off. No, well, it's not well that hat. No, I was gonna. I was about to say it's not his stupidest fashion choice this year, but that's by the by. <laughs> But what's funny as well, going into this match, is that it was a match we, I guess we anticipated we would be talking for this project. Because after the match in Noah happened, there was that sense of there is more to this. And also, within the politics of wrestling, even if Nakajima had stayed on at Noah as a contracted talent, he probably would have popped up in All Japan at some point to, I guess it would be return the favour and take the loss. But now that he's a contracted All Japan wrestler, and All Japan have some money and some stake in him, it looks like this is not the blow-off, pay-off match that we would have anticipated if we were going to talk about this. It's merely another chapter on a journey, a journey for Nakajima, a journey for Miyohara, and we would assume, as I said in the previous episode about this, a continuing journey for Aoyagi. Yes. He's definitely got the home crowd factor as Kento Miyahara because at the start of the match there's some really loud chants for him. And this this Johnny come lately that's turned up dressed like Antonio Inoki and like taking the mick. Well, he looks more like Kazuyika Fujita, who was one of the, who was basically the most successful wrestler under the Inokiism period of him sending New Japan wrestlers into MMA, Nakajima got some big wins, including one over Bob Sapp. Jesus. So he was very much who New Japan then built up as their champion, even though he'd only just graduated from the dojo a few years earlier, and was, frankly, pretty shit. (laughs) Amazing. So, yeah, we're going to have to do a deeper dive into that period of New Japan because it really was a bonkers couple of years. It has its defenders as well, so (laughs) maybe we'll do a deep dive into that at some point in the future. (laughs) But that's the weird thing, though. That's who he does look like. But I kind of was disappointed when I saw the shaved head because I feel of Katsuhiko Nakajima, and he was, when they did briefly do a New Japan Noah feud, he was kind of placed as an opposite number two with Tetsuya Naito, him and Kanao, as these similar rebel figures and I guess I attach that rebellion with that shaggy hair and the nonchalant look in his face. And he does return to that a couple of times in this match. But it is more just uh, like this is a serious turn and Nakajima now wants to be like the top guy of a promotion. Mm. And maybe rub it into the people there who were there by just vanquishing them relatively easily, yeah. <laughs> I suppose. Although this isn't an easy victory for him. Well, in previous matches, he fought like a killer, and now he's looking like a killer as well. I, I think maybe his character is, I've got to dress the part now. Like, I'm coming over here, I need... A, it's not enough that I beat the guy. Now I need to beat the guy in his house whilst I'm a member of the same promotion. Well, All Japan have obviously put a whole rocket pack behind Nakajima. In between him winning the 
Triple Crown from Aoyagi in our previous match and this match. He then went on to win the Real World Tag League as well. So he's just on a, the winning streak to end all winning streaks at this point. Who did he win it with? Is it anyone relevant? No one really significant. I think that was kind of the point as well, that he just sort of carried on his shoulders just like a random... Uh... He did the Moxley with Shota. Not so much with Shota, but I think it's more like the... Uh... Again, I might be wrong here, and those that know more about All Japan will say, actually, this person... But it's more like how Tatsumi Fujinami had Kengo Kimura, or um, Antonio Inoki had CG Sakaguchi, or Hulk Hogan had Brutus the Barber. <laughs> Brutus catching strays here. It's... What did you make of the match overall? I liked it enough. I think it was one of those situations where I did prefer the Noah match. But I wonder how much of that was down to the fact that Noah has these 8K cameras. It looked fresh. It looked different. And I think Miyahara was very motivated. And also, they wanted to make this special. And it felt special at that moment. It's a match that had been built up for years and hadn't happened, but had such a history behind it. And that they also built it so perfectly to that one slap. And to me, the equivalent slap in this match is just basically a callback. And it's not filmed brilliantly. It's not recorded brilliantly. The audio's not there. I don't know that the crowd is much bigger or smaller than it was for that Noah match. But it seemed fuller anyway, because that was in Krakowin Hall. Whereas the All Japan match was in front of a half-full arena. It looked like it might have been the arena that Goshi Ozaki and uh, Takashi Sugiura had their five-star match in Noah during the COVID period. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's of a similar design, at the very least. Yeah, it's not big time. Mm. The final five minutes are really good. But before then, I was baffled to see anything near five stars to me. Just didn't feel as grand as a Noah match because of that lack of uniqueness, because of the less production values, and because I guess it was more about building up Nakajima rather than it settling the score and feeling like... Like I said, if this had been the match that they booked, but it was Nakajima coming in to return the favour, and then it's the big triumphant moment for Miyahara. Yeah. And so you do everything that they've done, except Miyahara scores the big win at the end. Then maybe I would have been more receptive to it i still think it's good i still think i would give like four four and a quarter stars but i don't see five i think because we're not as on the pulse with all japan and not getting like the week-to-week lay of the land as much maybe this is like oh this is a setup for the next chapter but it's hard to know how many chapters are in a story as it's being written live so maybe we'll look back in hindsight at this match and go, okay, this got us to here. But we're, we're, we can only deal with what we know and we can only deal with the now. And I agree with you, Lorca. I, I think it was a bit... It was technically proficient, but I wasn't hooked by it. Yeah, also, it paid off with a submission, which again is another dominant way of Nakajima winning it. But... Outside of a period of a couple of minutes where Nakajima just starts kicking the hell out of Miyahara's arm. Yeah. It's not a match-long storyline, which I feel would have been the best way to build up excitement for that Mm -hmm. submission hold at the end. Like, obviously, he has hurt the arm, but it's not like, you know, Kijimuto just destroying the knee for the 
duration of a match or Tanahashi destroying the knee for the duration of the match, keeping them down on the ground to hit the high fly flow or whatever it is he ends up doing or trying to get them to submit with the Texas Cloverleaf. Yeah. With this one, it was just, I'm going to kick the shit out of a specific part of your body. And then later on, just by coincidence, that's going to be how I'm able to get the victory over you by just getting that arm submission. Mm. So I just... It felt a little bit anticlimactic in that regard. Yeah, it looked like a sound fight strategy, but not a sound pro wrestling story, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't see boxers like targeting. A, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes there are MMA fighters who target like leg, leg kicks, kicks to screw someone yeah. up. But that's not for them to put on a knee bar submission. Mm. It's just <laughs> no, it's more Tanahashi style. It's to slow them down so you can hit your big stuff. Yeah, but it's not like the only thing that they do. They'll look for punches, whatever. Whereas yeah. Tanahashi, if Tanahashi or a wrestler, whoever it is, just decides I'm going for the knee, yeah, then that's basically all they do for the rest. That would be amazing, though, if there is an MMA fighter who just goes for the knee or just goes for the ankle or the shoulder or the neck. <laughs> it's like when one guy figures out the strike system on the UFC games and one guy figures out the submission one. So it's just a fight of blocking takedowns. <laughs> there is one UFC fighter that just basically tries to turn it into a grapple immediately. Just goes down to the ground almost straight away and keeps going for like ankle picks and everything on his opponent. Just does not engage on strikes or anything because <laughs> he knows so I guess he's the UFC. And he's a really underwhelming looking bloke as well. He just looks like a guy that you'd like. If you just saw him in the street, you're like, eh, if I get a lucky punch, I could probably <laughs> Oh, oh, we're falling to the ground. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I like how it started tentatively because it's like they know what each other one's capable of at this point. Yeah. And like the really slow moving away from each other in the ropes. I thought they played that up very well. A lot of that just felt like repeats of where they'd done it last, like, you know, Miyahara just chasing Nakajima around outside the ring and nailing him with headbutts. It's like, I've been here before. Mm. Didn't really, yeah, there wasn't a freshness to this. I do think there could be over time. I think they could still have the great match that might be the payoff of, or payoffs for Miyahara. When he does get that win, it will, and you assume that is what's going to happen that, Obviously, with Japan, it's just suddenly. Oh, I'm just. I'm leaving. Oh fuck! Oh, gotta do it. <laughs> there's, as we, there's as we know, but yeah. Well, well, those those eight years of build up with three more planned years of build up have really been for nothing, haven't yeah. they? Yeah. New Japan feeling a lot like Finch in American Pie too, when Stifler's brother turns up, not Stifler's mum. I don't have anything more to say about this match, do you? No, not really. Again, just to obviously hang my hat on something, I'm not going five stars either. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't say don't watch it. If you're looking for a good match to watch, I would say watch the Noah match ahead of this match, but mm. doing them as a double bill, you're not really, it's not going to hurt you. Aesthetically, I'm not, but I don't like the shaven head. I don't. I think it's just change, you know. I don't like change. <laughs> I think him having that sort of like cocky, curly, it's not a perm, but you know what I mean? I think that suits him more. It suited what he was presenting in Noah more, and obviously I'm coming in cold to this All Japan side. Yeah, the idea of him like he's coming to All Japan and he's going to reinvent what All Japan is with his more striking submission base is probably an interesting philosophical story that they might continue on from here. And of course, three days after this, he has another title defense against one Charlie Dempsey. 
Hey. And who knows what that could be the start of as well as time goes on. Well, they've got their own, despite the fact Triple H said it's a silly term, they have their own forbidden door now. Oh, well. Anyway. He doesn't he doesn't deserve to understand the poetry of Hiroshi Tanahashi. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to go on to that one. It's funny because we were saying how much of a long story there is, but it doesn't feel significant to chapter as you, as it would have been necessarily because now it's a different story they want to tell. It's like the tournament match we did in rerun the rivalry with for McGuinness Danielson. It has a little of that feel to it. No, because the stakes are genuinely huge, because it is Miyahara trying to win back the triple crown. Yeah, but in terms of like... In terms of it not feeling like the final chapter. That's what I mean. Not, yeah. But you can argue that it's a definitive chapter insofar as the defining element of this story going forward is still that Nakajima's better than Miyahara, because he's won both of the matches they've had now. So it's going to be a case of building up to that one win so there could still be another one or two nakajima wins to come before we get he is shaving headed uh swerve strickland basically at the minute we'll have to wait and see but what's funny though with that is that i want to bunch up both the okada matches is what i want to do okay because i was thinking about this with the danielson match like there's a bit of backstory to it with this one but there's not enough to carry it beyond what it was originally always intended to be, which is a dream match. Mm. And so I felt like this, the the Wrestle Kingdom match, there was a lot of love for it, obviously, and I did enjoy it. But maybe I felt even more underwhelmed, but, or maybe it just made me realize what I look for with great wrestling matches, that you can have the great in isolation match between the dream opponents that we've never seen before. But you need to carry more to it, I think, to make it ultimately a brilliant piece of work. And Danielson is weird. They both have motivations coming into this one of revenge. Yeah. Okada avenging the loss. Danielson avenging him getting his arm broken. Yeah. You're right. It's not the story I think they went in going, this is our storyboard. They're, they're reacting to the arm break in the first match. And that's why it gets a bit more arm-centred. Uh, Danielson saying, I'm going to get a, if Okada can't rainmaking me if his arm's broken. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing of Spike fitting in with a, an actual match strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get where I'm coming from, though? Where it's like... It, weirdly, I think that, that gave it more than if it had just been the two dream matches and it's just the 50-50 booking agreements between New Japan and, all, and, and AEW. Our guy wins the home match. Your guy wins the home match. And weirdly, the opposite of how Omega Osprey was booked. Yeah. I do get where you're coming from. I think... I think that was a big problem going in. You just knew with 99.99% certainty that Okada was coming out of this. The winner. I mean, if the rumor... If the story of him coming... Like, giving up his contract have been present then it would have probably added an, an extra little bit of spice to it like maybe they will just give danielson the win yeah it, there's an element of the wrestlemania 31s where going in brock's uh, brock's contract was up in the air and then about a week in advance uh, before wrestlemania 31 he's like yeah I, i've signed a new like three-year deal and everyone's like oh he might actually like retain here and then they did their thing with seth and it took a whole new direction on its own but 
before Brock made that announcement, everyone's like, mm, it's a coronation because Brock's on his way out. If, and in this case, it would have actually like inverted things, as you're alluding to, because New Japan wouldn't be needing, wanting to protect Okada as much. Maybe out of loyalty to him, but I mean, if he's go- if he if it's clear he's going, the what's there to invest in? You know, well, they allowed him to win the final title defense of the Never Six Man belts. Mm. So you know, I don't think with New Japan it's not just a like, and, and with a lot of Japanese promotions, it's not just a sudden quick, quick having put him over because it's almost like the fans will see through the subterfuge, and so it won't even mean anything, and then it will almost mean less. As weird as that sounds, mm. but with this one, I think it was just a case of first of all. By Dengerson targeting the arm, yes, it all made great logical sense in the storyline of both the match and the strategy of this guy's finisher is a rainmaker, so let's go to his arm. But it also forces you to compare it to those two matches that Okada and Tanahashi had in 2013 where Tanahashi went for the arm strategy. And those are my two favorite matches in the series that they had. Those two matches would both be up there in my favourite ever... Like, they could both be contenders for my personal top ten of favourite ever wrestling matches. And, unfortunately, 41-year-old, one-eyed, make-up-for-lost-time Brian Danielson is not the match for physical manifestation of all that is beautiful and good in the world, Hiroshi Tanahashi in 2013. Yeah. (laughs) Not even Danielson can match up to that. (laughs) I mean, I view it for a slightly different lens. I view it through the lens of, ah, oh, his arm's hopefully not going to break this time, but he is going in with the eye injury. So it's not like match one where both went in on paper, and as far as we knew, as close to as 100% as a wrestler can be. This time around, there's like, we're running, we are running out of time in terms of full-time Brian Danielson. We knew how New Japan operates. We didn't know about Okada at this time. So there was, as Lorcan has alluded to, an element of the foregone conclusion about it. And you can sort of get away with that. It's how you get there. Hangman versus Kenny Omega is a good example of it was still good because it's how we got there and how they executed that in that specific match that they had. They're a victim of their own standards. Good. I watched them back to back. Yeah. And the previous match was good, but I think one of the problems was it was coming after the Omega Osprey match. Well, yeah. Danielson, as you say, broke his arm. Danielson and Kazuchika Okada both aren't ones that will try and do the overly flary and like big stakes, or even go to like the big long multiple two count stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was kind of surprised when I saw that this match was only going to go twenty three minutes. Uh, I I didn't even know. Okada could work that. Yeah. <laughs> do you reckon he had to do like laps of the Tokyo Dome after? <laughs> I don't know, but I guess it was. I don't know. It was because Danielson was worried that he couldn't do that kind of high intensity, big move stuff and not avoid injury, or if he's just more of a psychological purist and he doesn't want to do that stuff. Danielson, by his logic. And as he does during those sequences, just keeps going for the arm. Just just keeps trying to bring it down to the ground. He's not trying to do 15,000 creative ways of escaping the Rainmaker. He just wants to fuck his arm up so much yeah. that it's not even going to work when he gets hit with it. And and you do get, like, Okada having to hit up warm-up 
short reign makers in order to get to the uh, final. I'm used to a beautiful ripcord. Mm. You know, and obviously I get he's selling exhaustion and arm damage, but I'm like... Well, it also makes you appreciate how, because of how New Japan has always been structured, how rare it is for Okada to go up against someone of Danielson's stature and have to make him look good. Yeah, there's also a, pa- like, a parallel I'd like to draw, based of, of what you said earlier. Is... Well, what you want to do is get two pens, and then you can do straight <laughs> lines, and then you can draw a lovely parallel. Um... That come on, that was that good. was good. I do appreciate it. any any maths based pun, of course, or shape based pun. We're now one one. That is maybe one of the problems with dream matches that are interpromotional. There's always the politics of it. There's the back and forth. There was always an element of how someone wins a match or in what degree they win the match. Or there's the sense that they have to return the favor to the other person. It's like the inevitability of the WrestleMania 29 match between The Rock and John Cena. <laughs> Not just the inevitability of it happening, but the inevitability of what the finish will be. And that also made this match feel anticlimactic, because you know that Okada's coming out of this one with the victory. Because in that moment of time of watching it, it was like 99% likelihood it was going to be Okada coming out on top. And so, like I said, because of their more conservative format of wrestling for both of them, and because you're also comparing it to the grand bombastic whiz bang effects of omega osprey yeah these two matches have underwhelmed slightly but they're still fundamentally good but it's like it's almost like when people sometimes have a go at william regal for not having all these classic epic matches and it's like well regal doesn't come from the philosophy of you should be having these matches like for him the logistics of it aren't like if it's a submission the way that Regal works a submission is that he fights and fights and fights until it's clasped on and then he taps out. Yeah. It's not like how and they do with this match. Okada gets the big submission applied to him and it's the submission that Danielson won it with the last time. And he fights and fights and then is able to get out, really, just because of how bloody tall he is. <laughs> you know, tall blokes getting the advantage yet again. Ah, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> and I do like how that was really an improvisation of Danielson's on the night of the first one because his arm was so screwed up he couldn't do the label lock convincingly and not hurt himself but he was able to turn it into a deadly looking submission hold oh it looks gnarly yeah and so that becomes like the okada killer although i think it's really a Zack saber jr kind of move and of course we might don't tell brian him. that <laughs> yeah well that's probably one of the zach will probably apply it to brian in their next match in the hose like this is how you do it dickhead i love it is like smack talk. You said to me separately to all of this the other day in our chat that you are going to miss Grumpy get these young kids off my lawn, Okada. We we see a little bit of it. Not in this match, but we do see it in the other match. So... It's not the same, though. It's not the same. It's not... It's not. Uh, no, it's not the that's same. Not, that's not, to be fair, with Okada and, and Osprey. That's not get off my lawn. That's, uh looks like I'm going to have to teach my little brother another lesson. <laughs> How many times have I got to teach you this lesson, young man? Kiss the ground. <laughs> Kiss it. Kiss the ground. You know, I appreciate Danielson doing the arm stuff. And we even get a little Masanobu Fushi arm ringer over the shoulders. Drop the arm down on the on his shoulder move. i tell you what was a spot that it worked, but it was dumb originally. Was Okada trying to do the big long run up to a drop kick, but then being met by a running knee by Danielson? But my issue with it was the the levels. It was like Super Mario jumping from level to level. And I just like I feel like that slows down the momentum of a charge, not help it. 
Yes. Well, yeah, but it's 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 gravity assisted. It's ah, whatever. It's wrestling. Yeah. Anyway, he got a knee in the face for his trouble, so I'm not that upset about it, really. It was very well wrestled, but it was an inferior version of those Tanahashi matches in 2013. If you want to see a better version of these matches, watch those two Okada Tanahashi matches in 2013. Do I did, did I like this match in the same way I liked the first match? I like this match more, to be honest. I felt like the New Japan setting fit it more. I think the inevitability factor weighed on me a bit here. Well, also, I don't think that they wrestled the match they wanted to wrestle with this match, whereas I think the previous one was stymied by events. Yeah. But oh, I wouldn't say five stars. So that was uh, part one of the Okada yeah. Odyssey. Well, that's funny, because like I was saying... That there was like a shallowness of backstory to the Danielson match, but this one—I mean, the video package ahead of time, which I'm assuming you didn't watch—I did actually, because it was like it was basically just keeping count, wasn't it? Yeah, I suppose because it was also following on from the other one, so maybe you just kept going. No, New Japan kindly segmented it properly, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get me started on that. Oh God, yeah, we'll be here all day. Yeah, well, waiting for a match to load. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to go out of chronological order, I guess, as an experiment to see whether this works for the format or not. But yeah, we'll just move on to... We'll skip a match and go on to the final match of the five in in, um, chronological order and then go back on ourselves. On the same event, actually, weirdly. You're making me think of Steve Coogan and the other guys. The best way to tell this story is at the end. (laughs) And then at the beginning, with brief flashes to the middle... (laughs) Oh, God, we're doing this like a Christopher Nolan movie. Anyway, <laughs> how slow Okada was wrestling for the first 10 minutes or so of the mock of this Osprey match, that I assume this match must be going 55 minutes or something. And then it was over in less than half an hour. Jackie he's, he's leaning into that now. Well, he was so... This is as heelish as I've seen Okada be mm. in um, quite a while. This was almost like... Yeah, I guess... Well, as you were saying, it's like, get off my lawn, Okada. It's not quite that, but it's definitely arrogant heel Okada who thinks he's above the guys in the ring with, and judging by their win-loss record, as they point out, you know, is. <laughs> is very much. But when this match happened, we knew that Okada wasn't staying on in New Japan. Did we know that he wasn't staying on in New Japan at this point? Or did we just know that he hasn't yet signed the contract? The timelines are a bit... Because remember, this is like still mid-January. We knew that Will Ospreay was gone. Yeah. But I don't yet know if at this point we knew that Okada was gone. And that's not really that important to the context of the match. But what I did feel like, this was another one of the Will Ospreay farewell tour greatest hits journey that we've been on. Yeah, we've, we've had it with Takagi. We had it with Zack Sabre Jr. We sort of had it with Shota Umino, although they'd only had like one match before that match to build it up to, but they still managed to do it inside of the match. With this one, it's what, the 10th match they've had between them and going into Okada's 7-2? Although Osprey did win the previous match and it's the only clean win he got in that so far because the one match he won before then was his heel turn in the beginning of the United Empire with Great Khan helping him get the victory. But by now, the positions are completely changed. Osprey is the on-his-way-out babyface, and Okada's, you'll always be my number two. And obviously, depending on where Okada lands, as I said, this might just be the midway point of an ongoing series of matches. You would assume New Japan won't 
ignore this backstory if and when they book each other against each other if Okada does end up going to AEW. Yes. But what will be interesting is how those matches will be wrestled. Because I was watching this and I was thinking, we can't have this version of Okada, even in AEW, let alone WWE. They won't let him sort of be that languorous and dominant and that version of him, really. I think they would expect a faster pace from him. I don't think I don't want him in either company to work a full-time schedule. I want him to remain special. I think he'd have to wrestle a full-time schedule in WWE because he won't be perceived as special enough to that audience at this point. They'd need to showcase him more. But again, let's save that for the Tanahashi episode. Do you think the arrogant Okada is is him trying to wrestle a bit more American style? Well, I sent you a text whilst I was watching the match saying Okada just spent 30 seconds pulling a shocked face after Osprey kicked out of his finisher. He must be prepping for his life in the WWE. Because other than that, it was mostly just the same Okada we've seen in most instances. Actually, there was one thing that the Danielson match did that was different. It was actually Danielson beating the shit out of Okada on the outside of the ring. That was usually Okada's spot. <laughs> it's like, you've taken everything from me. <laughs> it's difficult to add to what we've discussed about this match. Because even though we do want to touch on it in the later point, a lot of the... The talking points really aren't about the match itself. Um, it is. Not by the numbers. That diminishes it. But it is them doing what they've done before. And it's very lovely. It's very nice. There's, there's nothing groundbreaking about it. And uh, you could argue that Battle of the Valley would there be. It's not really like a, the crown, a crown jewel in New Japan's calendar. I don't, I, I don't really know what I expected going into this match. I didn't have that dream match vibe because it's not at a big show. <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's It was the big farewell, so you kind of know Okada's probably going to win because Osprey's leaving, and at that point, I don't think we knew that Okada was going to be the champ. And either way, New Japan would still probably want Okada to go over Osprey one last time because he will be the New Japan grown talent against the outsider. But it did just always play up to that story that Okada's the one that brought Osprey in. Osprey is, and I've said this before, he's sort of been the Dark Mirror Universe version of Okada in the way that Jay White was the Dark Mirror Universe version of Hiroshi Tanahashi. Yeah. But with Okada, but with Osprey, it's just that he can do all these amazing physical feats. And again, because it's New Japan, but it's not New Japan, so the pitch quality is not that good, the sound mix isn't that good. So whilst you're still getting those great hook kicks and the like from Will Ospreay, and he's hitting them just as well and as crisp as he ever does, because we're not getting the great audio connected footage of it and it's not the most pristine widescreen image of it, it always seems lesser somewhat in that arena. And maybe that's why the John Moxley one works more, because that is just them doing a classic half Japanese deathmatch, half US indie brawl format. But we'll come to that after we finished off with this. But yeah, yeah it's, it is more of the same. It is greatest hits, and it is Osprey still not quite having enough to match his older brother. And ultimately coming... But obviously, if they'd have continued on, if Osprey was known that he was going to stay at, at New Japan at that time, maybe after he beat Okada in the semis, he would have beaten Naito in the final, and then he would have made that final ascension to the top of the promotion. But once he lost that match to Naito... There was that sense of, oh, he's not longer 
much longer for this place. That was really the sign, and then he was just not being booked in anything of any real significance except for just IWGP US title defences. Yeah. The the writing was on the wall. Okada's come more out of nowhere, like like an os cutter that he does. And it's funny as well seeing much more of the aerial assassin uh, Osprey. It's not the dominant guy who's like doing all the heavyweight moves he's busting out more of the high flies still in this match and it's it's like when you it's kind of like when you're around your brothers you do revert back to your younger version of yourself <laughs> so he does just revert back to aerial assassin osprey because that's just the only thing he knows what to do around okada it's like well yeah how else am i gonna beat him this, this is i am faster than him that's the one thing i'm confident on uh, i did love how he turned the rainmaker into the Stormbreaker. And I think that's the that makes Okada the only person that's kicked out of that move. I might be wrong. So we did get, like, if you were to say this is the epic blow-off, the fact that both of them got to kick out the other one's finisher. Like, kicking out of a Rainmaker, they've managed to make that a bigger deal now than it was for a brief period of time, where the Rainmaker had kind of lost some of its oomph, and they brought it back, and now... Yeah, we went for the whole money clip era as well, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. But as we said, that was really the point that got Shingo Takagi to be a main eventer. was probably him managing to make the money clip look good. So, <laughs> in our internal logic of it. That's, yeah, that's, that that's, that's our opinion. Oh my yeah. god, this is our employee of the century. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this actually looks decent. Yeah. Uh, let's, oh, maybe you sort it out. Let's watch the next match. Who's it against? Yoshihashi. Oh, fuck. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yoshi actually made the Rainmaker look bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only two notes I've got left. One is, again, all this long time lore when Osprey spots Okada crawling along the ropes and he's up on his feet, does the Kenny Omega Bullet Club pose, and then he's going to do the running V trigger into yeah. it. And then I think that is when Okada sees it coming and does he do a drop kick or something? He does. Yeah. I think he's shotgun drop kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also, um, Osprey also does hit a Styles Clash. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's another little reference. Also, the other only note I had, certain level of ignorance of the fans in attendance. They start doing an Aussie, Aussie, Aussie chant at one point, and Osprey just turns to them and goes, I'm English. (laughs) I do want to highlight how Osprey is really drinking in the crowd. He is going along with them, chanting along with his name at the start. He's enjoying well, yeah, I mean, it's the continuing move of Osprey back to being a babyface again. And I do assume yeah. when he comes into AEW full-time, which is just a matter of weeks, I guess, now, he will be departing from the Don Callis family and probably his first big match will be against Takeshita or Powerhouse Give Hobbs. me my Australian son back. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are... Attention, Will Ospreay. We have your Australian son. Attention, Will Ospreay. We have also arrested your bigger, stronger, moustached Australian son. Kyle, this is your English father, bruv. Do you know where my Nando's card is? I have a red shirt. Have you checked your pocket, Will? It was in my pocket. It was. It was. Oh, such a good scene. <laughs> oh, we keep finding ways to. <laughs> the Simpsons refers to everything yeah. if you look hard enough. Uh, so, yeah, I would go four and a quarter, no more than that. I will say, I, I don't know if I specified, I would go like four and a half for the Okada Danielson match. 
So it's not yeah. like I hated it. I'm just saying. Anyway, I liked it more than I liked this match. Because yeah. even though this had the deep lore that the Danielson ones lacked, this wasn't meant to be the final scene. And it might not yet be the final scene. We'll have to wait and see. So shall we go to the other New Japan match or shall we travel backwards in time? I mean, we might be doing this in Meltzer's viewing order. I don't know. <laughs> Let, let's stay with the event and then we'll finish in Mexico. I mean, we're already in San Jose, so let's stay there. What I will say about this match is that it worked best in America and the American fans bloody loved it. It was peak John Moxley's silly, goofy, hardcore fun. <laughs> But ultimately, to me, it's another tribute to just how fantastically well-rounded Takagi is. Like, Takagi is almost, maybe even of equal or greater abilities of Brian Danielson to be able to adapt to whatever environment he's working in and whatever kind of match he needs to wrestle. Just look how he dressed. Mm. Yeah. He got the memo. (laughs) Even with the knee pads over the jeans. I mean, that's attention to detail. Beautiful. Utterly beautiful. A lot of the time I have my problems with just these guys that just wrestle these matches all the time. It's like, if you're going to wrestle like this in every match, how do you convey when you truly hate someone? But with Moxley, it's just like he loves fights. And so anyone that wants to engage him in a fight, he will do so. So he will give them the hatred of like a bitter rival for life. But he's just as likely to shake their hand and hug them at the end of it. Or see how he interacts with Eddie Kingston compared to how his stablemate interacts with Eddie Kingston. Exactly. But I'm also thinking, like, you know, if he wants to continue hating afterwards and going into it, like Hangman Page, just from out of nowhere, they're just like, I am going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Like, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't go to that level with Takagi, but he does pretty much everything else. But it is funny seeing, like, whenever it engages in wrestling, Takagi comes out a bit more on top. But then when it goes to the weapons, he will very often fall short in the first half. And in the second half, he finally starts to... He's swimming more clearly in the deeper waters towards the end of it. At the start, he's flailing. Like, he brings the two kendo sticks out and just hands a kendo stick to John Moxie. And then John Moxie is just able to beat him up with it. Yeah. Oh, I I don't really know what you're doing, but <laughs> the eye stuff made me squirm. Yeah. Well, they they, they always do that. They Moxie knows how to get the, those reactions. Uh, he makes it look convincing. Like I know, like the whole fork in the eye thing can be a bit hammy, but Moxie makes it look like he's doing it. Well, the worry as well, I suppose, with these hardcore matches. I don't know about you, but I watched it with a Japanese commentary. It was marked as being the English version, but I was only getting Japanese commentary. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Did you cast it? Yeah. Right. When you cast it, it overrides your original choice. I see. So you have to hit the you have to hit the subtitles button mm. and then select alternate, and then you get your English. But you can do that through the Chromecast. Uh, yeah. Once you've casted, you you do it on the app, and that's because I listen to the English commentary because I had the same problem as you. So like, I picked English. Where's the English? So I, I so that's it. This is interesting actually, then, because you obviously listen to it Japanese. I listen to it English. Of course, when Simon says "Where's the English," he's usually walking down Leicester High Street. <laughs> <laughs> Shit! Oh, I'm mad at myself. I gave you the rope. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> Oh, I hate it. <laughs> what was interesting listening to it with the Japanese commentaries, it reminded me of when hardcore wrestling came into WCW in 1999, and Bobby Heenan, Tony Schiavone, and Mike Tanay's reaction to it was to find it all highly amusing. 
Like they were just basically laughing at a lot of it. And obviously there's always... Did you say 99? Yeah. Well, that'll be why. Yeah. <laughs> they, Tony didn't care in 99. And neither did Bobby. Bobby Heaton had gone past like he was in a new realm of not caring. He made Bret Hart in 1999. WCW looked like Shingo Takagi <laughs> in this match. Japan, Japanese wrestling can be like that, though. They, they can be brutal at times with just finding oh, things yeah. hilarious and just laughing at them. I remember there was like a spot in an Arn Anderson-Steve Austin match. You know, Arn Anderson, Steve Austin, respected in-ring wrestlers. And they do the spot that you do. They do so much in America where... The guy comes off the second rope to do a double axe handle into nothing, but it's just the perfect position to get a boot in the face from the guy lying in the mats. Mm. And in America, just lets it fly. Does that in Japan? They're getting laughed at, yeah. and it is not intended as a comedy spot. So yeah, that, that Japanese can they, they can be brutal. The Japanese crowds, absolutely. But there's always been that kind of humor too, John Moxley. Always there, and obviously when he was in WWE, they emphasised it more and made him like a goofy, Ugh. wacky character, which he obviously didn't enjoy, but he did for the money, and he made his money and cashed his chips, as he said. And met his wife at the end of the day. Like It's not like he had a bad time. Well, no, but um, he, got, he knew when to get out. Yes. but And now he's just having this... Match if it had been, in, I mean, this is in front of a relatively small crowd for John Moxley, or maybe not. I suppose I am getting being deceived by the AEW cameras. So <laughs> mm. Maybe not. But this would, if it had been in, having this exact same match, he would have had it in front of fifty fans, and so would Takagi. I think <laughs> you know, they would still put out. They, they, they love the business. They love the game, and you can tell in the, and how they perform. But I think it is just the, the sense is that Takagi wanted to be tested. He's the one that made this challenge to Moxley and Moxley is very happy to test them. In the American commentary they pointed out that Shingo came out and said he wants to fight Americans now. He wants to test himself against Americans and this is how he's ended up in this situation. Well I wonder if that's an indication that he'll be a regular on New Japan Strong going forward. I wondered if they were going to try and wind up operations in New Japan Strong but I guess not for now anyway. But I do see New Japan Strong kind of going the same route as NXT UK. If, yeah, if you can use it as your NXT, you might as well. But are they, though? That's the question. And they have that LA jo- Dojo. Yeah, but they also have TNA, where they can send uh, uh, Yui, Yui Mora to. And they had AEW that they could send probably one or two of their recent graduates to. We, we'll, you know, we'll see. Because Nagata did his year away... On learning excursion in WCW, so the options are there. Yeah, and there's you know was that was that rehab after he got battered by Croker? No, 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 <laughs> that was beforehand. Oh, again, we'll talk about that wacky world of early two thousands New Japan another time. Yeah, but uh, I think the thing is, if you've seen one of these Moxley matches, you've seen pretty much all of them. It's just that Shingo Takagi's a, a level of competence that's makes it more exciting. I like how he did the hangman choke, but clearly he's not good enough at it. He's like, well, this worked against me, so I'll try it. Oh, it doesn't work. <laughs> this is one of my notes. The beating continues until Mox brings into in those bamboo stick things. Although they didn't do the, the no. weird spot where they all come popping out of his head. But he does still use it. And he even jabs it in his mouth at one yeah. point. That was a horrible... 
Oh. Did he put one in his ear or his nose or his, you know? It, it, towards the eye. Yeah. It was towards the eye. That's I think that's when he was doing his eye gouging yeah. that I was referring to earlier. Like you say, those things that Mox likes to do where there is some sort of relatable pain in them, whether it's the scratching of the back or the putting his hand. The biting. Yeah, the biting, putting the hand on the brick and stomping on it or whatever. That he brings that relatable element to it. I do like how he sneaks in the curb stomp still every now and again as well. Mm. Yeah, Takagi turns it into a fight with like combining his power base moves and his speedness, and also surprising Mox at one point with the green mist. And it was a good load of green mist as well. That's a good, it was a good misting. <laughs> now, is green poisonous? I think the idea is green is poisonous, red burns, and black is like. I, I, the green bl- black turns you evil. Green blinds, red burns, and black. I think is like a poison or something. It's like the deadliest. Right. And I think it kind of works that, that those are the ones that you use more rarely because there's a danger to utilizing them yourself. You're putting yourself in risk or something with those too. Yeah. It was also just one of those things that just every Japanese wrestler knows that if worse comes to worse when they move to America, they can just start misting people. And the fans Break out like, the mist, you're fine. Has, has Nakamura ever used the mist? Yeah, he missed Cody recently, actually. And again, like that's nothing that Nakamura had before, but he's Japanese, so it works. Yeah. So yeah, it is strange seeing Takagi be in a match that's about him being out of his element, especially because, as we say, the thing with Takagi is he's so adaptable. So it's reminiscent of those great ones like Mick Foley against Edge or Triple H or Sting back in 92 WCW. But now it's Moxie that's doing that, and he has been doing that with other people, and he did that to Hangman, and then Hangman was able to dole out that treatment to Swerve, and I guess Swerve... It's just that Swerve was too insane. (laughs) Well... You can go back and listen to that, the final one of these single match discussions. Did you notice at one point Moxley almost fell into the camera? I think to like his hope was to get blood onto the camera. Mm. You know, Mox bleeding. No big surprise. Shingo bleeds as well. Yeah, well, that is news because again, New Japan just basically nearly never do it. Yeah. The only other time I can think of recently was Osprey doing it during the first Wrestle Kingdom match with Omega. Oh god he does, doesn't he? Before then maybe they maybe Jericho utilized it in one of their matches with Naito, but you know. But again, this is not really a New Japan match. It's in a New Japan ring, but it's not a New Japan match. It's not a New Japan crowd. So it's yeah, New Japan Strong's like a I don't want to call it a halfway house. But I've seen I've watched Forbidden Door. I've watched New Japan guys in American audiences. It's, this this isn't this isn't novel for me, but um, the crowd had a great time. Oh yeah, it was like a fun. Said. Yeah, it was a fun match. I didn't love it as much because I don't really love a lot of these matches, but I do always appreciate when there's something innovative and you know that Takagi will bring something interesting to the mix. I'll tell you what, and also because of the previous year where Takagi was doing all those King of Pro Wrestling matches, and he managed yeah. to make that belt five star worthy in the eyes of Dave Meltzer. <laughs> doing semi-comical matches with Taichi, but because he puts that thought in. And you know what was the spot that made me think? I bet that was a Takagi spot when he's trying to do the chair shot to the gut and Moxley stops him. And then Takagi just lifts up the seat and pushes it down so that it presses on the thumbs of Moxley. Yeah. I was like, that's a Takagi spot. Takagi's got the thought process that comes up with that and just putting something different in. 
He's working within those rules. I think if everyone worked gimmick matches the way that Takagi worked gimmick matches, you and I would not be annoyed at tables matches or whatever it is that are our, you know, our bête noires within wrestling. Yeah. Oh, uh, Moxley was bringing out the stomp. Yes, yes. I like that. He, he's done it before. I tell you what, though. Actually, I will talk about one of the things that does annoy me, and it was in a Takagi match, so I guess it was a problem. I'm so fed up of the under the ring is where the plunder stuff is, and I think the reason I'm annoyed at it is the level of setup. I just There was a point in the match where I just wrote so much setup, and it's the table being brought in, being placed in the right place, putting the legs out, and the other person just has to be down for the duration of it. Again, like fancy booking thing. If I was to do it, you know what I would do? I would have it be that both wrestlers get the choice of, like, five weapons that they can have. And the weapons are placed around the ring at the start of the match. So then you can get them. And there could be, if you want to add a bit of excitement and, you know, mystery, have a mystery box. You know, where we don't know what the final weapon is. But still not have it have to be... Just the getting it out, the teasing. You could and do everything. a lot with a mystery. And we box. all know a table's going to come into play, so let's just not have to have the legs set up and everything. Let's just have the table be there, like it was. Well, that's why. That's why. That's why the TLC matches work so well, because the tables and the ladders and the chairs were already out there. So, yeah. like half the worry's gone. Yeah, I, I know. I know what you mean. The English commentary actually went all oh, under the ring. There's where all the plunder is. They actually said it. They said it. Yeah, they should have someone do. Like I said, it, it would probably be a good Takagi spot if he was to do this in the King of Pro Wrestling. But he just goes under the ring and just pulls everything out, so he knows yeah. that all the weapons that all the other person's gonna get. It's like, hey, I was saving that for later. <laughs> or there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> that's it's just empty. yeah you know how the king of pro wrestling is all about them coming up like the recent one was like them doing circuit training in the middle of the match yeah they should have one where it's like no ring drapes we yeah. see exactly what's under the what's ring under from there. the start just see a bloke there eating a sandwich like, <laughs> horn swoggle just on his computer <laughs> on his game he psp yeah, yeah horn swoggle just on his psp Oh, yeah, you have no idea how many wrestling shows I go to. It's just, I'm not always going to do it. Yeah. I mean, if I did it every time, it'd be boring. <laughs> yeah, but we don't know that. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, we had fun with this. I I would go, what did I put down? I think I put down, yeah, four and a quarter stars. Fun, but not entirely my kind of fun. Yeah. You know, there are just certain comedies where you are more receptive to that style of comedy, but you can appreciate... Like, I'm sure that the slaps... You know, I don't go for slapstick that much, but if it's good slapstick, I can appreciate it. The trouble... That, that, yeah, everyone's got that where we appreciate good slapstick, yeah. but you see a lot of bad it's slapstick. Like, there are great heavy metal songs that I like, but I don't listen to a lot of heavy metal. Yes. That's kind of where I stand with these sort of matches. This was a good one, but it's not... Some that's always my cup of tea, and therefore there'll always be certain limitations almost to it. Yeah, and I, I guess also because Cactus Jack Triple H was so pivotal a match to me at that point in my life. It's one of those things where I don't know if that can ever be topped. Yeah, because seeing it, I mean, seeing it in a New Japan ring is different, but seeing it in a WWE ring was even bigger. Yes. Um, but yeah, it was it was a weird like half comedic brawl. 
but it worked. I didn't have problems with like the logistics of it happening, even though neither of these guys hate each other. There's deep respect for each other, but it's like I've always wanted to be challenged by this fighting style, and it's like because I respect you, I respect that you want to try this, so I'm gonna try to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to go out for a drink afterwards, I'm up for it. <laughs> oh, no, no. So we're well, obviously we've talked about two matches that took place in San Jose. Let's go south of the border. Down Mexico way. To a promotion debutante, as Logan has alluded to, CMLL. They've been waiting 80 years for Dave Meltz to give them five stars or higher. <laughs> the moment he's born. Why'd you hate us? <laughs> or Cinco Estrada. Well, it's funny because I think to those that are big wrestling fans and follow it, it always seems to be that CMLL, EMLL, I'm not sure if it was always CMLL and the EMLL was like a, a translation issue or if they have changed the name over time. But that was always seemed to be seen as the more respected show for like just good wrestling mm-hmm. and where the better wrestling always takes place. But Triple R is like the big bombastic, you know, larger than life characters and presentation. I mean, you know, I was like, well, the, the commentary is not just over the PA system. <laughs> Yeah, the screens do show some ads, but it's not like <laughs> oh, it's not as intrusive as the yeah, it's not as stuff. close as like those. Uh... <laughs> it was almost to get to the Simpsons ones, the epilepsy-inducing. <laughs> and now we go back to seizure battle box. Yeah, yeah, that felt like what was on in the background at some of those AAA shows. Yeah, and look, you gotta get your money. I get it. I do see why also. Arena Mexico is like one of those. There are a lot of wrestlers like their goals in life as a wrestler at Madison Square Garden, Tokyo Dome, Krakowin Hall, and Blackpool Pleasure Beach. <laughs> well, Wembley's a lot more attainable now. Yeah, yeah. Arena Mexico. And I will say, those seats looked mighty comfortable as far as wrestling seats go. It was a nice setup, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, it's two out of three falls, uh, a la Lucha tradition. I didn't know going in i try and i try not to know as much as possible i will say just i mean i don't see why this match i feel like this match or this level of quality of a match is probably wrestled in mexico most days yeah there didn't seem to be anything in this that made it seem like like i get why los gringos locos against el hijo del santo and octagon got the five stars because that was like a culturally significant match and it was like a payoff to a long-standing feud and everything this just like a couple of those other matches that we got five stars from last year with um el hijo del vikingo just seemed like just another day in the life of a luchador i've probably got three more matches to wrestle before the day is done yeah he we've been spoiled lucha like it's not it's not when Rey Mysterio burst onto the scene, a la Micah Richards in 1996. We all know about it now. And as a result, that and how American-style wrestling's got faster. We have. We've been spoiled, man. Well, that was the point that I made when we were doing one of the matches in PWG. I think it was the last one that we'd done. There was some sort of significance to it. I don't know if it was the 150th match or something in the run. And my point that I was making was that the unique styles of each region, the uniqueness hasn't entirely gone, but the self-contained 
style isn't there anymore. Like there are a couple of moments in this match where they do strike. They they do a forearm exchange, don't they? Or am I? Mi- yep, they exchange forearms and chops on their knees. Yes. It's like that was not a part of the Lucha Libre of the 90s or even I would imagine the noughties. But because these guys haven't just been watching shows at Arena Mexico since they were little kids or whatever, or the exploits of El Hijo del Santo on TV, they will have watched stuff in Japan. They'll have watched mm. American wrestling. They might have even seen some World of Sports on their YouTube exploits. You never know. And so because of that, they're fusing it all together. It still is mostly Lucha. Yeah. And CMLL, they, they are the Mexican link with New Japan, aren't they? So they've had an excursion people as well. And they now have reached an agreement with AEW. I mean, because AEW have been swallowing up so much of New Japan's talent, it feels like they might need CMLL just to make Forbidden Door, <laughs> like to fill a card, really, of yeah. quote-unquote team matches. And Mascara... It's weird he's got to deal with both Mexican promotions. Well, he sort of does and doesn't entirely, but yeah, it's like... I think basically the AAAR deal will mostly be off at this point. I mean, Black Taurus has just left AAAR. But it's interesting, actually, with AEW, I think he's started to make Ring of Honor a lot more Lucha-focused. Like, I think he's going to try and make that Ring of Honor's more of its unique selling points. But, again, going too much into it. But Mascara Dorada, at this point, I think he's seen as one of the great future stars of wrestling. And he's only 22 at this age. I was going to look it up to see if this might have been, like, the first five-star match from Meltzer where both wrestlers have been born in the 21st century. That might have already happened, to be fair, but I don't think so. It's not. The other guy is about 31. As far oh. as Mexican wrestlers go, he's quite a big lad, and there's a lot more power moves in his arsenal in this match, but he can still do the traditional Lucha Libre stuff. He's a good landing pad for his opponents. Oh, yeah, Templario. And he gets the first fall very quickly. Well, I mean, it's it's th- two out of three falls, and it's 18 minutes, 20, 28 seconds. I mean, when we talk about that tag team match, Los Gringos Locos, there's like seven fo- or eight falls in that one because it was two out of three falls, but every fall in itself was two out of three falls. Yes. <laughs> so. Fallception. Do you know what to name the move that got the second fall? Because I put it as like a flipping gory bomb, but I've got a question mark in my notes against it. He's got him like a crucifix powerbomb, so it's like the razor's edge. But then it seemed like he couldn't get him over his head. Mm. And so he shifted it into, like, a torture rack. Yeah. And then turned it into the Psycho Driver, yeah. the the Super Dragon finisher. It was I think it was meant to be one thing and then had to become another thing because right. he, he didn't get the of how Like, how, how girthy Templario is. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't have a name for it. You're right, yeah. Yeah, but also he he hit a V trigger at that point in in that sequence as well. It does seem a bit stacked against Dorada here because not only is Temporario the bigger man, but he's got he gets his mate involved and it's fine. Well, it's kind of like it's not quite a handicap match. I think it's sort of like <laughs> as long as your partner is under a hundred pounds, you're allowed to have him. So basically, he comes out with a little little fella as a mascot. And these little fella mascots are a staple in Mexican wrestling. Dressed up in these sort of monkey suits as well. Yeah, he's red. Red and yellow. There is a very, very famous spot. <laughs> I don't know if you... I guess you haven't seen it. I might have. I might have seen the meme or the gif. Yeah, you probably have. Because basically, whenever... When Colt Cabana did his Edinburgh Fringe shows, he would always end them with that spot. 
yeah. of this wrestler getting a basement drop. They get bopped on the head, and they're sitting on the apron, and the wrestler comes and hits him with a basement drop kick, but he hits him so low that he sort of shooting star presses into the barricade yeah. and takes it full force. It's amazing. Terrifying. <laughs> yeah, you, you laugh in the hope that it was fine. <laughs> but you're too lazy to do the research. <laughs> also, uh, Dorada seemed to be <laughs> an enemy of the canvas. Yes. As the iron-on logo caused him to slip at multiple occasions in that match. Yeah. That was the thing, like, if you're going to rate a Lucha match five stars, I feel like it should be, because it is there's such more of a choreographed nature to it mm. and a gymnastics routine to it, and that's fine because that's what Lucha is. But if it's going to be five stars, it's like five stars in an ice skating dance to go back. There has to be no slip. Yeah. Although I know they rate on a nine scale. and To be fair, maybe Meltzer's at that point very soon. <laughs> Maybe that's what a nine-star match is, a Lucha Libre match where nothing goes wrong. (laughs) A man can dream. (laughs) And we don't really know the story going into this either. We've got to give it that caveat. Well, that's also the funny thing with Mexican wrestling as well. We're told who the Technico and the Rudo are, but in every match, it feels like the Rudo does Technico stuff and the Technico does Rudo stuff. There's moments in this match where Mascara does things quite underhanded or unnecessarily violent. And there's moments where Temp... Bellario is a stand-up citizen of the community. <laughs> so I, I didn't actually know. So is Templario meant to be the Rudo? Yes. Then? Well, I took that by the fact that the fans were booing when he won the first fall. Mm. And the Mascara Dorada, I think, is kind of like the local hero at this point of that promotion. He's like one of their top guys. Dorado's boot to, what was it, Kukiko? Is the guy's name? Something like that. Yeah. Violent. He... Boots the hell out of him. <laughs> I tell you what, AAA wrestling very often does seem to descend into brawls and violence a lot quicker. This does seem to be more rooted in the map-based wrestling that all Mexican wrestling was meant to originally be built from, and then the the high flying and the flip sort of came afterwards. And there was that that there were like high flipping moves, but in the first few minutes they're rooted in like a map-based procession to it, like the flips almost come out of it. It's like one of them does the Rio Romero submission hole, which is just a Mexican submission hole that everyone does at some point in the surfboard. And their way out of it, they they do quite an interesting... He biceps out of it, doesn't he, Mascara Dorada? So it's like a technique situation rather than um, Templiaro. Again, I'm getting the pronunciations right. My next move I've written down after that is a rolling ankle lock. Yeah. Sort of like flips into uh, the ankle lock. And he gets a submission for the first four with the... It's like the Tequila Raz setup, but instead of it being a half crab, he does a Texas Cloverleaf out of it. I called it a modified Scorpion Deathlock. Mm, well, you were wrong there on multiple levels, but, you know. Because it wasn't a Scorpion Deathlock, it was a Texas Cloverleaf, and the modification was that it came from the Tequila Sunrise. So... Well, you know. Every day's a school day. But yeah, the more map-based approach, it almost at one point looked like breakdancing. There was... But there were a couple of moments where they both like slightly stopped in their tracks at one stage. Once was when they went to a double clothesline spot, but it was like they stood in front of each other like MJF and Adam Cole and said double clothesline. Yeah. <laughs> and there was another one later on where it was like, how do you not see a drop kick coming, I think? Although that was also in the Osprey Okada match. There was a moment where it was like one of the first times where I thought, surely everyone in this moment should know that Okada's going for a drop kick and he didn't. he still got to hit it. 
Yeah. Well, Iron Robin mm. still got to cut in on his left foot. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can't. Sometimes you just can't stop it happening. Oh yeah. Another another difference, obviously, with this CMLL, the the ring is square. It's four sides. Mm. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that I would like CMLL more than AAAR in general. I don't think I have enough of a sample size, but I enjoyed this. Much. Well, I just also know the reputation that CMLL has. I think Joseph Monticello gave it his promotion of the year. Um, so, oh. and he's hard to impress, that man. Unless you're Eddie Kingston for some reason. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, I just I enjoyed it for what it was. Again, I just don't see what is five stars about no, it. No, me neither. Yeah, but I, it's funny seeing like these indie spots, these Japan spots in this Lucha Libre yeah, Lucha world. Prism. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, Templario's sort of trying to do those middle rope jumps like El Hijo del Vikingo, but he's not. There's not many El Hijo del Vikingos out there. No, and maybe no. with Vikingo, no way he works. It might not be that many. <laughs> he might not be one of them <laughs> sometime soon. <laughs> Oh, hopefully. It'll be yeah, fun. that's it. Another awkward pause from Dorado leads to a Templario drop kick. So yeah, that was it wasn't I wasn't mixing it up. And Templario has a little awkward bit where he's clambering into the middle of the ring, but it allows him Mascara to do a springboard rana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Dorado did not give a very Technico kick to a little person. <laughs> he boots him. <laughs> but you can see like the the. Grace and the, I get it. Yeah. I understand why. Yeah. He's cheating. <laughs> uh, but then afterwards they shake hands. Yeah. Well, to be fair, the Vikingo shook hands with the dude who broke a ball over his head. They're a forgiving bunch in Mexico. Mm. I tell you what I do need to show for a match of the week sometime soon. There are, there are Mexican promotions out there where it's just two very old men fighting in a car scrapyard and very often threatening each other with broken balls. So that's the Mexican wrestling world is something that we just need to do a deeper dive into. It's a whole phenomenon. Oh, also, Templario will forever be one of my favorite wrestlers. He very nearly became my favorite wrestler in the world. You know why? Why? He blocked a reverse Rana. That's why. Yeah, I mean... We've talked about tropes somewhat already, but... Oh, and another trope, uh, Canadian Destroyer. Yeah. <laughs> Although that does set up the finish, so... Yeah, I mean, it's Lucha. It's yeah. sort of more expected. Yeah, yeah. So it gets a bit of a pass. And I think this is good Lucha. I don't think it's five-star Lucha. It was fun. Again, a lot fun. Of fun. Well, yeah, none of these matches would I say don't watch them. Yeah. But also none of these matches do I say five stars. Yes, the match I would rate the highest out of the five that we've done is probably between Danielson Okada and Mox Takagi. Mm. And because I'm just more of a, I'm always going to be more of a Danielson guy than a Mox guy, I will say Danielson Okada is the best one out of the five. But again, I wouldn't put this, like, it's not going to be in. I would not expect any of these to be my match of the year for this year. Yeah. And we already know we've got at least one more match to cover for the next one. <laughs> it took place on the 14th of January. Because if we'd have done the format as we'd done it already, what, we have just finished the Okada Osprey match and had two more to go? And Yeah. So whilst this is still teething problems, we've managed to cover f- five you know, five matches in, you know, at time of recording, 90 minutes. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see. But. We'll retain. We're working this. We'll out. work out. We're ironing out the kinks. 
But you really got me going at some points in this match. So. <laughs> in this discussion. But you hope we got you stimulated and enjoying our conversation. For the next episode of Let Me Tell You Something, we're going to be doing some silver screen visions as finally the iron claw reaches uk cinemas and myself and simon and hopefully a third guest which might become a regular feature of silver screen visions for 2024 but we'll make sure for certain when we get to that one but it's not just the wrestling movie i've most looked forward to in a long time it is the movie I've looked forward to the most in a long time. It's Zac Efron. It's Jeremy Allen White. It's Maura Tierney. Weirdly, in a second movie involving the claw for her. <laughs> crazy. And a lot of other people on the talented cast. And a director, Sean Durkin, whose previous film, The Nest, I really enjoyed. Which was also about a screwed up family. They were upper crust British Americans. These ones are good old rough and tough tumble Texan wrestlers. Yep, yep, yep. Although we still have an upper class English woman in the cast because, you know, it's an English actor. They probably had to go somewhere. <laughs> but until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with any other recommendations of how to keep your opinions to yourself, how can they do so? <laughs> people can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm Simon, Simon Cross Free, free for the number of class action suits I can probably <laughs> file after this episode. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Well, that's L-O-R-C-A-N. <laughs> M-U-L-L. A for the A in attorney. N for the N in no contest verdict. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you wouldn't add gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtwisepod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. We hope you have a five and a quarter star time. Until the next time. <laughs>